Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon, with big ups to my pal Riza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and producer of our dope theme music. Over the past eight weeks on Hulu, a truly spectacular, heartbreaking limited series has been unfolding that deals as compellingly and truthfully, and therefore also tearfully and enragingly, as any piece of popular art that I have come across with one of the central crises plaguing America in the 21st century, the opioid epidemic. The series is called Dope Sick, and it deals specifically with one particularly infamous opioid, OxyContin, and the equally infamous company, Purdue Pharma, and widely reviled family, the Sacklers, that inflicted OxyContin incessantly, insidiously, greedily, deceptively, and indeed criminally on this country. Dopesick features a stellar cast, Michael Keaton, Peter Sarsgaard, Rosario Dawson, Michael Stuhlbarg, and Caitlin Deaver, the astonishing 24-year-old breakout star of the Netflix miniseries Unbelievable, all at the top of their game. First two episodes, directed by the legendary Barry Levinson. But the singular voice and animating spirit behind Dopesick is our guest today, the writer who took Beth Macy's devastating book, Dopesick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America, and imagined it for the screen. Writing or co-writing seven of the eight episodes in the series and directing two of them, including the finale, which drops this week on Hulu. And a guy who has some news for you if you're one of the many people who believe that the worst of America's opioid nightmare is behind us. And that would be the one and only Danny Strong. The state of the opioid epidemic in America is as bad as it's ever been, and it's continuing to get worse. And hopefully we can find a path to course correct because there are ways to do it and they're just not happening. If you are a fan of classic turn of the millennium TV fair of a certain type, you may have come across Danny Strong first or know him best as an actor as Jonathan Levinson in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Doyle McMaster on the Gilmore Girls. You may have seen him in guest roles on Seinfeld, Clueless, Third Rock from the Sun, Grey's Anatomy, How I Met Your Mother, or playing Danny Siegel in Mad Men, or Albert Feckes on Justified, or most recently as Todd Krakow on Billions. But it's Danny's work behind the camera that has been more central to his career for the past decade plus. The first script Danny sold was for a film he made with director Jay Roach for HBO in 2008 about the chaotic overtime period down in Florida in the 2000 presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore. The title of that movie, Recount, would be enough reason to have Danny on this podcast. But in addition to snagging Danny an Emmy nomination and winning him a Writers Guild of America award, Recount ended up being a kind of prequel to Danny's next collaboration with Jay Roach for HBO four years later. The adaptation of a book that I co-authored about the 2008 presidential election called Game Change. That movie ended up winning a boatload of awards for everyone involved, from Emmys to Golden Globes to a Peabody, with Danny taking home just about every statue on offer for the Game Change script, and, not incidentally, sticking him with me as a friend and devoted fan. Danny's career since then has been busy and bristling with success after success, from writing the screenplay for Lee Daniels as The Butler and two of the Hunger Games sequels, to creating and executive producing the runaway hit series Empire, to making his feature film directorial debut with his J.D. Salinger biopic, Rebel in the Rye. 
But Dope Sick is by far the most ambitious project that Danny Strong has taken on, one that tells the story not just of OxyContin, but the entire opioid catastrophe at every level, from the ordinary and all-too-human struggles with the ravages of addiction, to the corporate amorality and malfeasance of Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, to the abject regulatory malpractice of governments, both state and federal, that have allowed a wholly preventable epidemic to course through America, nearly unabated, for more than 20 years. Laying near-apocalyptic siege to whole towns, cities, and regions across this country, and killing in excess of a half a million people in the process. It is a story so maddening, so unjust, and so tragic that it summons righteous indignation and red-hot fury in equal measure. And it certainly did that in Danny, which you'll see if you take the time to watch Dopesick, as you really should. And you'll hear a little bit of, in just a moment, on this podcast, as Danny Strong brings some fire and brimstone to the febrile confines of Hell and High Water. Dr. Phoenix, did more than 1% of your patients become addicted to OxyContin? Dr. Phoenix. I can't believe how many of them are dead now. And what do you think caused so many deaths over such a short period of time? You too, young lady. You take it easy, all right? I know, Doc. Dr. Phoenix? Oxycontin. So that's a scene from pretty early in the epic and now just about to conclude Hulu drama series. A little docu in there, too, because it's based on reality and based on a book, which we'll talk about with the auteur, the man, the myth, the legend, my friend, Danny Strong. Hi, Danny. Hey, John. It's great to see you. You know, I've, I've, we watched the first part of Dope Sick. Diana and I watched it when we first got the screeners and you guys got us hooked because we watched the first five episodes and then you made us Dope Sick for Dope Sick. The last three episodes were like still in post. Did you get to finish? You always got to finish. Oh, I good. Got, oh, good. We got to finish. Well, it's funny because I did, I don't know if it's funny, but then I, I did the next two and was able to get those out to everyone and then had one more to go. And it just took a little while. And I was, the emails I was getting of, when is it going to be ready? Wah! Yeah. Well, we tried yeah. not to bug you too much about it because it really was addictive. And I have to say, like, you know, I'm a huge fan of your work. And we're going to talk about it a fair amount today, but... And I thought it was brilliant from the start. The moment I started watching it, Diane and I were literally like in the way you want to binge television. And we got to five. That was the long wait was between five and when we got to see six. That was a yeah. hard, that was a hard month, basically. I think that was a month. Yeah. around like scraping television, <laughs> trying to find something else to feed our needs. I'm glad that you were so anxious for the next episodes. And this, this episode of the show comes out just on the eve, basically, of the final episode, the eighth episode dropping. And, you know, a lot of people will listen to this. So we're not going to do any spoilers. We're not going to do any, okay. any episode eight spoilers. Although much of what's in episode eight is actually in the public record about Purdue Pharma. So it's there's some stuff that's very kind sure. of it's, a lot of it brings you up to date. I just I guess want to ask you, we know each other from a lot of different contexts. But what obviously brought us together first was you writing the script based on Game Change. And we'll talk more about that later. So I know a little bit about your method and I know how much source material matters to you and like how much a book can inspire. You like to have that material. You work sometimes in just pure fiction, but when you're doing stuff that's rooted in history, you like to have a very solid source material. So, you know, this piece is based on a book. I want you to just talk about the book, the author. She's been out doing some promo with you, how you found this book and how you found your way to the topic. 
Yeah. So it actually didn't start with the book. It started with a producer coming to me, John Goldwyn, and saying, do you want to write and direct a movie on the opioid crisis? And he had come up with the idea, I think, from the New Yorker article by Patrick Radin Keefe that had come out in 2017 that had blown up the Sackler's involvement with Purdue Pharma and the opioid crisis, which hadn't gotten this sort of mainstream coverage until that article. And so I was interested in the subject matter. I had read the article too, and I hadn't thought of it as a scripted drama. But so then I started researching, and lo and behold, there'd been a few books already written that had partially covered this material, Painkiller by Barry Meyer, Dreamland by Sam Cajonis. It's become kind of a classic of the genre. And from those two books, along with some other articles, developed the show and came up with a pitch. And then I sold the pitch to 20th, which is a studio in the Disney Empire. And then Fox 21, which is another studio in the Disney Empire, not knowing that I had just sold this pitch, goes and buys the book Dope Sick, which hadn't come out yet and I hadn't even heard of, in a massive bidding war. So they've spent all this money on a book and now they basically have a dead project because I'm a writer with a pitch ready to go out. They have a book. It could take six months, a year, two years to find a writer for the project. So they asked me if I would team up and I read the book. Uh, I love the book right away. Uh, Yeah, we should say something a little bit more about the book. I kind of glossed over that a second ago. The book, Dope Sick, came out, I guess, three years ago. Beth Macy is the author. She's a a former reporter for the Roanoke Times. This was not her first book. She wrote a couple other books that were bestsellers before Dope Sick, a book called Factory Man, a book called True Vine. But Dope Sick was not just a bestseller, but critically acclaimed and really kind of broke through in a big way for her because it really kind of told the story of this crisis, the opioid crisis, in a way that, you know, no one had really quite captured in full until that book came out, you know? Yeah, I loved her book, but more importantly, I loved her. So I went and I had this meeting with her and I thought, oh, this could be great having this expert on the opioid crisis. She wanted to be in the writer's room. She wanted to be a major part of the process. And I thought, oh, to have this expert here full time. And she's such a lovely woman. And then I explained to her what I was up to. And it very much encapsulated the spirit of her book. And the first third of her book covers the Brownlee U.S. attorney case. So I agreed to team up and and Beth joined the team. And it was terrific having her there. We kept um, reporting this thing all the way till the end of production. Her and I would do interviews together. We would do them separately and come back to each other. And people were coming out of the woodwork left and right. A lot of people didn't want to talk. It was unlike what we did with Game Change or with what I did on Recount, pretty much everyone wanted to talk. Well, I wouldn't say everyone, but many people wanted to talk, as opposed to this, where there were many people that did not want to talk. But then slowly they would come forward over the course of of an 18-month period. And I would rewrite scenes a few days before we'd shoot them because I'd get new information from one of these interviews or a leaked document. It was quite exciting, to be honest with you. I'm glad you uh, amended that to many people. Not everyone wanted to talk because I'm still searching my memory for the like the six, seven hour Sarah Palin interview that you did to try to get to the yeah, bottom of her. Yeah, well, that was the key one that did want to talk. That, yeah, that's the one that's like. <laughs> yeah. I, that's Although that... I had something better, though. I had her book. She had written an entire book. So yeah. I knew I had her story, at least from her book. So that's sort of like the legislative history of kind of how the yeah. thing came together. It's fair to say, you know, if you watch the series and if you've lived in America, certainly if you've lived in certain parts of America, the opioid crisis has been in your life, in your face, destroying your town, destroying your community, destroying your family for 
a long time now. It's not like a new phenomenon. And I want to hear what, what you mean when you said in our cold open that the opioid crisis is worse than ever. But for a lot of people, and even if you watch Dope Sick, you can kind of see the various, there's ebbs and flows and there's peaks and, you know, you have places where it became very dominant in American life more, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, even further back than that. So it's a weird thing though, right? It's a thing where where you live really determines how much it is in your face. It has affected a lot of American families in all places. But like, you know, there are places in West Virginia and Kentucky and other places where it's like the main fact of life in a town. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is for you, when did this kind of like enter your consciousness? Because I feel like it's been a background condition bubbling along for a long time, but never as in my face as it became a little later and has certainly become in recent years with some of the lawsuits, some of the settlements, et cetera. Like, when did it break through for you that this is a giant American epidemic and there might be material in this that I really think is important to dramatize? Well, they're very two different time periods. You know, when it first started to become aware of it, I'm guessing I remember first hearing about Oxycontin in 2003, 2004 yeah. as something that was dangerous. I had some friends that were recreationally taking Vicodin and they would, uh, you know, they'd be like, oh, but we don't take Oxy. And I'm like, well, why? Why? They're like, oh, because that'll kill you. Oxy can kill you, but Vicodin's fine, mm -hmm. right? And that was, you know, like I said, 2003, 2004. And then the phrase, the opioid epidemic, I don't think that really hit me till 2015, 2016. Yeah. Yeah, I think right. with the election of Trump, it was discussed as a factor in his election in certain states. And I think that was maybe the first time it was getting... I don't know if the first time, but at least when I, it sort of became mainstream to me. Yeah. Uh, and then it was really that article and then me doing the research post that New Yorker article that really blew up the story. I think that article had a significant impact in that uh, Nan Golden read the article and then started doing these audacious protests in, in museums all over the world. Right. And those protests kept the story going yeah. all throughout 2018 and then 2019, the bankruptcy and sort of reckoning for the Sackler family, although not really. But it, it became a nonstop news story, I think, 2018 on. You know, you have written and directed feature films I mean, and obviously you've been involved in, in making episodic television series, both behind the camera and in front of the camera. But, you know, you think about Empire and other things that you've created and gone on for a long time. I don't think you've made a miniseries like this before. So it's like a slightly different challenge and an opportunity, right? Making an eight hour long thing that's going to be, in this case, an ensemble drama with an incredible cast, which we can talk about in a second. But as you approach this challenge of how to dramatize this and how to keep the A, to build the narrative arc of it, but B, also to deal with a really big problem that you had to deal with, which is the, the shifting of time, you know, because this thing moves forward and back in time. Mm -hmm. You have some neat visual devices to try to help us understand when we're in 2002, when we're in 2016, when we're wherever. But there's a lot of moving parts here and a lot of characters. And so I just I'm curious about how you thought about that and approach that challenge. Well, I think that was why it ended up being a limited series instead of a movie. When it was first presented to me, it was to do as a movie yeah. and I was going to approach it as a film. And once I started doing all this research and then I started sketching out these stories in a real rough, simplistic way of the Brownlee story, the DEA agent story, you know, the Purdue story and the town story. That was one of the first uh, decisions I made, which is I, I wanted to approach it like traffic from multiple perspectives, yeah, yeah. very much inspired by the film Traffic, right? Yeah. So then I started sketching these plot lines out and I realized very quickly this is going to be way bigger than two hours. And part of it was that one of the primary goals was to document the crimes of Purdue Pharma. That's very much the sort of 
narrative underpinning is following these investigators uncover their crimes. Because to me, that was one of the most shocking elements of this story was how deceitful, dishonest, just pure criminal this company was in marketing a highly addictive narcotic as non-addictive and that that created so much destruction in the country. So I really wanted people to understand these crimes, but there were so many crimes, John. <laughs> they did. There was so much criminal behavior that I couldn't fit it into two hours. Right. And each episode is basically centered around another crime they committed. And so that was part of it was that they committed so many crimes. And then there was also this other factor of, 2018-ish, middle 2018, a limited series is starting to become some of the most dynamic entertainment out there. And I'm loving the genre. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, this could be a really neat sandbox to play in. And I think it's the most appropriate way to tell this particular story. I mean, one of the great things about making something like this is, again, yes, you can let it fly and drop in foreshadowings and motifs that recur and all this kind of stuff that you can't do. I mean, people don't really understand. I think I don't really even understand the way you understand how like a little space there is to move in a two hour feature film, like how little, how, yeah. just how efficient you have to be about trying to compress a, a story. Like I'm always shocked. You don't have time to do almost anything in two hours, but you have a lot of time to do something at eight. Yeah. And you do in this. And I think, you know, one of the things you talk about, the, the kind of procedural elements of it, the investigation, I just want to say. You know, you've got this cast playing the different elements. There's that investigative element. There are the people who are pursuing the legal case, the investigations, the crimes of Purdue Pharma. And then you've got the human toll of it, right? Two different sides of that coin. Mm -hmm. And this cast that you put together, you know, Michael Keaton, we heard him a second ago at the beginning as Dr. Phoenix with Peter Sarsgaard, who's Rick Mountcastle, one of the U.S. attorneys in Virginia, who's one of the prosecutors who's pursuing the case and being questioned in a court case. That was what that clip was. But you've also got these, all the Rosario Dawson and Michael Stolberg playing Richard Sackler is incredible. Actually, I, I want to just play a little bit of that right now because I want to get back to Keaton in a second. But I want, let's just play this little clip here of Richard Sackler. And this is the second episode of, of Dope Sick talking about very early in the development of this drug that would kill so many people. When Roach hired Arthur Sackler to market Valium, it needed to find a way to separate it from Librium. So Arthur devised a specific medical condition called psychic tension. Now, we have created the greatest painkiller in the history of human civilization. And all we have to do to ensure the world gets it is to figure out a medical condition that would require an Oxycontin patient to double their dose. So there's like the picture of pure evil there, right? That's what that is, right? You know, there are many morally complex characters in Dopesick. Richard Sackler does come across as human and vulnerable in certain ways and certainly weird. So not purely satanic, right? But pretty much at every turn, he pursues the most morally bankrupt, most pathological, most damaging course throughout the entire eight hours that we watch. Yeah, and that's why we have the opioid crisis. Right. I think it's completely accurate. Yeah. I think to this day, he views himself as the victim in all this, that he did nothing wrong. He still pushes less than 1% of people get addicted to it. When under a doctor's care, that's the phrase that he throws out there. But I believe that his personality disorder, however you want to diagnose it, uh, people that have worked with him that I interviewed would say he's on the spectrum 
other phrases like that, but it's lack of empathy at the end of the day. This is a person that it has been reported by many people and from my own reporting can confirm that people believe he has a, a severe lack of empathy. And then that lack of empathy is why we have this opioid crisis, because he would never stop selling. And this is one of the things that kind of blows me away about this story is that by, I don't know, 97, 98, they're getting reports internally of abuse in these ground zero towns that they're launching the drug in. By 2000, it's a news story. By 2000, 2001, the DEA is actively pursuing them as we portray in the show. They have multiple meetings with the DEA. Those DEA scenes actually occurred. Some of the dialogue in the show is straight from what actually was said. Then you've got a grand jury, a secret grand jury is formed in Roanoke and U.S. prosecutors come after them. In 2006, they settle with these prosecutors, three misdemeanors, $600 million in fines. At the time, seems like a really big deal. What do they do? They just sell even harder. They become even more deceptive. They triple their sales. There's never a moment where they ever say, oh, this is dangerous. Oh, people are dying. Oh, we need to course correct. Oh, we can actually reformulate the drug to make it less prone to abuse. They never do that. They do the opposite. That's a pathology. You know, I see sociopaths in that type of decision making and it's staggering to me. Yeah. And I'll say just to kind of dispense with the Sacklers and Purdue, it was in the middle of this period while we were screening Dopesick earlier this summer that the, the news comes out on September 1st, the New York Times headline, Purdue Pharma has dissolved in Sackler's pay $4.5 billion to settle opioid claims. And I, Diana, my wife and I were emailing with Danny. We said, hey, did you see the news? And I kind of expecting, you know, that this seemed like big news. I don't, I don't follow the story like with intensity, but it seemed like big news. It got a lot of coverage. Yeah. Uh, and Danny comes back and, and said, and I'll quote this email just because I don't think you'll feel <laughs> this was off violent. the record, this email. But uh, go ahead. Email, I don't remember when I wrote you. No, you, you said, I think something I'm sure you would say here. You said the one thing I've learned about Purdue Pharma is that they always win nine billion dollars in DOJ fines and they still always win. You were almost like dismissive of the notion that, you know, they're dissolving Purdue Pharma, but still somehow this company will end up getting the upper hand. And I was kind of struck by that and wanted to ask you about it because you're obviously learned a lot about this in the course of your time doing it. Yeah. And it's not just Purdue that always wins. It's the Sacklers that always win. They always get away with it. They always slither out of whatever is coming their way. And you see it happen in, in the course of the series. I mean, this investigation by John Brownlee and his prosecutors, uh, Rick Mountcastle and Randy Ramsire, was kind of one of the big moments that this crisis could have been stopped. They made a case against them. We watched them through the course of this show make their case and they make a great case. And then at the very end game, it slips out from under them what their ultimate goal was and why it slips out goes to something very profound about the very dark nature of American capitalism and our government institutions relationship with private industry and with the wealthy. One of the reasons why I wanted to do the show is because it goes to such a profound extent that that it's people at the highest level of the U.S. government ultimately enable a company like Purdue Pharma to continue on with it, enable the Sacklers to slip away with it. And the only reckoning for the Sacklers has been their reputation. And I don't know if if that means anything to them or not. I mean, I'm sure it's not fun being vilified as one of the most evil families in the history of the country, as a congressman said to them when they were hauled before Congress. Uh, I said, I don't know of a family more evil than yours. Right. But, you know, they still have their billions. They've never been charged individually, the Sacklers, for crimes, which I think is absolutely outrageous. I don't understand why the Justice Department isn't pursuing criminal charges against Richard Sackler. 
Martha Healy, the attorney general of Massachusetts, says that she's seen evidence that is strong enough to prosecute individuals in the Sackler family. I don't understand why this isn't happening. And I think it is outrageous because the company itself has pled guilty to three felonies in 2006 and in 2019. Billions of dollars in fines, ultimately $9 billion in fines is what they pled guilty to. With the bankruptcy, they're only paying $4.5 billion, right? But this company has pled guilty to all these crimes, and yet the people that micromanaged the company, that oversaw every element of the company, well, they themselves have not been charged. So did these crimes commit themselves? Was it just some amorphous thing that the company accidentally occurred? That's actually what they claim was that these were these were low level people that committed these crimes. Right. But, but that's all been proven to be untrue through yeah. their emails. One of the things that I admire about the series is that, as I said, you know, it's a, it's a complex story with a lot of threads and it, it and it goes over different time periods, different time frames. And I do think you do an admirable job of I never felt lost in it. And I, I sometimes feel I'm like getting increasingly addled as I get older. So I get lost, you know, in, in some of the simplest things on television. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was never felt like I was lost in time with you. And I thought that the the device that you used to kind of keep us tethered to where we were and when we were was really kind of well done. Before we go to a quick break here, and then we can turn to acting. We don't have to, by the way. Oh, no. I, well, first I'm going to turn to acting. In, I want to discuss one actor in Dope Sick after the break okay. because I'm so in love with the performance. Um, sure. I think it's so magnificent. And I know you, you know who I'm going to say, but. But the question I want to ask you before I do that is this, is that, you know, I do think the opioid crisis kind of punched through in 2016, partly not just because of Trump, but because of Chris Christie, amazingly, who gave that one answer in the fall of 2015 up in New Hampshire, which was racked by the opioid crisis. And and Christie gave a very emotional discussion of a friend of his who he'd lost to the opioid epidemic. And it was the one good moment of Chris Christie's campaign where people were like, oh, that guy's a human being. And he sounds like he's talking in a language I can understand. And it elevated the issue. You know, I think everybody who doesn't live in a place where this is the central fact of life. And again, I will say there are places all over America over the last 20 years where this has been maybe the central fact of everyone's life, their health, sure. their economics, crime in their town. It's the main thing going on. And if you don't live in one of those towns, you don't understand how pervasive it is in some places. But everybody else, even when they kind of acknowledge it, wants to kind of push it away, right? Wants to not really look and not really examine it in the way that you have. And I think right now, if you asked a lot of people, especially on the back of a headline like the one in September about Purdue, I think there are a lot of people like, well, that was bad for a while, but we're kind of past it. It's kind of over now that we all know Oxycontin is bad now. So people aren't taking that. And it's harder to get the prescriptions now. And, you know, doctors have tightened up on it. And there's a lot of state regulations and all that stuff. And then I hear you, who I, I think at this moment may be as much of an authority on this as anybody, say it's worse than ever. Please explain. Well, I, I mean, look, one thing you just said, right, what's well, harder to get prescriptions now. So that's created a group of people that need these prescriptions that can't get them. So there's a class of people that are chronic pain patients that have been using this drug for years or other types of opioids that now have a tougher time getting access to them. But what this has done and how it's spread its tentacles is because it's harder to get, it's created an even bigger black market for heroin and fentanyl. And fentanyl is incredibly dangerous. You can literally die from taking one pill that you think is, you know, a black market prescription drug, but it has enough fentanyl in it to kill you. And the number of people that relapsed because of the pandemic has been staggering. So the addiction rates in the last year, the overdose rates and the death rates have skyrocketed during the course of the pandemic. So that is why I say it's just getting worse. It's not getting better. 
So you can say Oxycontin, maybe that's regulated in a tighter way, but this is now splintered off into so many different directions, which, uh, which be, by the way, the splintering began, I believe, in 2011 when Purdue finally reformulated the drug to make it much tougher to abuse. You couldn't crush it and snort it anymore. And so that's what exploded the heroin market is when people right. couldn't crush and snort their Oxycontin anymore because it was reformulated, they switched to heroin. <sighs> yes. You know, that's the one thing that we know about drugs, Danny, is that demand always finds a way. This is a much longer conversation, but it's why all, I well, would say, you know, people people are going to figure it out. Yeah. And here's, here's the huge difference, I think, with this story than your typical drug story is that there will always be people that want to take drugs, that want to use drugs, they want to use it recreationally. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But in this story, you have this wave of addiction occurs because people got injured and were given a prescription yes, drug. Yes, of course, of course. And they were told it was not addictive. And they were told it was not addictive. And they were, they were, they were, and they were addictive. lied to. It's, it's, yeah. I understand it, it's different. Yeah. All I mean is that like what you're talking about is also the fact that once you have a a huge demand for anything, I would say. If you can't deal with it on the white market, you're going to find a way to deal with it on the black market. If you can't find, oh, a, yeah. if you need a substitute, you're going to find a substitute. It's like it's like letting the genie out of the bottle. And and the way they let this genie out of the bottle, you know, I mean, although we could have discussions about the way that cocaine cartels work and other things, it's particularly horrible that if you were under a doctor's care. And the doctor said to you, this is not addictive. Take this thing. And it turned out it was like the most addictive thing you could possibly take. That's the thing that's most fucked up about it. Yeah. Uh, I I think we can agree about that. We agree on everything, John. Uh, Okay. We're going to take a quick break here on Hell and High Water. Danny Strong, writer, director, actor, improviser, beard wearer. I mean. You like it? Oh, God, I love it. I did it for you, John. I did it for this interview. I'm like, John's going to like this beard. He's here on Hell and High Water. We'll be back to talk a little bit more about Dope Sick, and then we'll talk about Danny after these words. We have done a lot of exciting things at The Recount since we started this company a couple years ago, but I have rarely been as excited about anything as I am about a brand new podcast that's joining The Recount Podcast Network. This is a podcast co-hosted by two amazing journalists. I'm talking about Elsie Granderson and Will Leach, and the name of the show is The Long Game with Elsie and Leach. I was like, you know, we got to get into sports at The Recount, and the way I want to get into sports is by talking about the way that sports intersects with gender and race and class and politics and economics and the business element of it and the pop cultural element of it. Like sports is like fucking everything in America, right? Sports connects to everything in our lives. And when I thought about who would be the best people to host it, I was like, Elsie Granderson and Will Leach. Elsie is like a guy I've wanted to have on my team for a long time. I'm so psyched he's here. Will has been on other teams I've coached in the past, and Will is always like one of my favorite people to have. So we got two five-tool players exploring all the stuff that makes sports more than sports. And that's what's going to make this show an absolute must-listen. The show, again, is called The Long Game with Elsie and Leach. It's already up and running, and it has new episodes every Wednesday here for the recap. And we're back with Danny Strong here on Hell and High Water. Danny, I told you I was going to talk about your acting career, but I haven't yet gotten to the performances in Dope Sick. So we're going to, you, okay. you're unfortunately, your tours de force. We could skip my acting career and just talk no, about no, no, the no, Dope no, Sick no, no, performers no. if you want. There are too many Danny Strong addicts out there who okay. need a little Buffy, who need a little sure. Gilmore, who sure. need a little crack out. But anyway, let's like, talk about the absolutely amazing Michael Keaton yeah. in this part. But let's Unbelievable. play. Unbelievable. I want to play. This is the very end of the fifth episode of Dope Sick. And I, at the time when I saw it, I texted Danny. I'm like, this scene 
is like a punch in the gut and the, mm-hmm. the psychic solar plexus. So we're going to play it a little bit. This is Phoenix, the doctor who starts out as a prescriber, becomes an addict, and then goes into rehab. And then the Purdue rep, sales rep, who kind of ensnared him in the whole OxyContin thing, comes to visit him in rehab. And this is what happens at the end of episode five of Dopesick. They showed us all this data from famous doctors uh-huh. and think tanks. You know, it was really convincing. I'm so sorry. It's all one big lie, and I know that now. But I, I, I don't know how to stop, you know? It's the first time in my life I feel like I'm something. I have things. I, I have everything I ever wanted, but... Hey, I'm, hey, hey. It's okay. Life's hard, you know? That's take some uh take some crazy turns, right? I didn't ask you to come down here to, you know, tell you, hey, you should leave your company and get on out of there. I didn't ask. That's not why I called you down here. I thought you you didn't? No. No. Hey, uh, you think you can get me some pills? I mean, like, I gotta say, man, Keaton is amazing in this series. I just want you to talk about the Keaton of it all. And that that moment, which I I mean, I did not see coming. He becomes a horrible addict over the course of a horribly ravaged addict over the course of this series. He ends up in rehab. He's taking it seriously. He looks like he's getting better. And then when he says that thing up at the end there, can you give me some more pills? I just like crumpled into a little ball. Mm. Uh, and I thought it was a testament to how great Keaton is. Of course, we know he's great, but just talk about how central he is to the series, what you thought of his performance, how he approached it. All Keaton information gratefully received here on Hell and High Water because sure, he's just a sure. genius. That moment was such a, you know, it's a crucial moment in the show because it shows you how uniquely difficult it is to overcome an opioid addiction. You think, oh, he's on the path to recovery and and it's no, not even close. And that difficulty continues with him and with the character of Betsy as well. It's it's so, so incredibly difficult. And with Keaton, childhood hero for me, sort of my favorite comedy star as a kid, uh, become one of our great dramatic actors with Birdman and Spotlight and the founder, just incredible work. So there was this list of actors of who to offer Dr. Phoenix to. And I saw Keaton's name on there. And I said, well, I mean... He'll never do it. So do we even want to waste the time in making an offer to him? Because he hasn't done TV in 15 years. He's not the lead. It's an ensemble show. I just don't think he's going to do it. But we haven't uh, made an offer to anyone else yet. Once you start racking up a few passes, you start to get gun shy about making offers because then it looks like people don't want to do your show. You know, so he was sort of our first big swing for the fences. Why not? No one's been offered anything yet right and so let's just go for it and i thought maybe there's a shot because of spotlight and the founder and i knew he had done this movie called worth that i hadn't seen yet but just he clearly had an affinity for true stories so an important true story so we offered it to him and then i heard he wanted to have a meeting with me and everyone was stunned because he never does that he just passes he gets offered everything everyone wants him right and then he passes on everything so when i heard he even wanted to meet everyone said okay this is a big deal 
So I had this meeting with him. It was real exciting for me because it's Michael Keaton. I mean, <laughs> he has such a unique place in, yeah. in American yeah. culture. And I don't just feel this way. The entire cast felt this way. Everyone has an awe of him. You know, Rosario Dawson would call him, you know, my forever Batman, Beetlejuice, 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 Michael Keaton. You know, like there's just this deep love for him. Yes. And so we had this meeting. And then he asked me to write the arc out because he only had read the first episode. So I wrote him a five-page document of the arc, of what happened to the character. Yeah. He then says yes. Oh, by the way, he tells me in this call that his nephew had passed away from an overdose. Right. So this was a very personal subject matter for him. And that was one of the reasons why he wanted to engage on it. So he says yes. We get to the episode where he becomes addicted and a few days before he calls me, he's like, whoa, 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 what, 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 what is this? What he, he becomes addicted. And I said, Michael, I gave you a five page document about what, what happened to him. <laughs> and he went, yeah, but I didn't read it. And oh, so, come on. <laughs> so then he said, this is going to be a lot of work. And I said, I said, don't worry about it, Michael, you got this. You're going to be great. And I can tell he was like, oh my God, I didn't realize what I'd signed up for. And then he shows up for the very first scene we shot where he had transformed and it was unbelievable out of the gate. He is an actor at the highest level. He was incredible. He kind of nails everything in a few takes. There's so much depth. There's so much soul. He's the most down to earth superstar, maybe besides you, John, I've ever met. And he's he's just literally. Thank you for carving out that exception. Yeah, of course. I, I, you know, and it's totally accurate. He just kind of is what you think he is, and he's really funny too because he's Michael Keaton, right? So obviously he's going to be funny. And it was amazing experience. Uh, I was blown away by him by the work every step of the way. And as a person, I just love the guy. I mean, he's just great to be around and tell me Batman stories and Beetlejuice stories. Amazing. It's amazing. I heard him do an interview promoting both this and worth at some point late in the summer, maybe early in the fall. And it's an amazing arc. His career is an extraordinary thing. If you look about it, as you say, he doesn't do that much anymore. He basically is very selective. And he talked about why part of the reason that he he did dope sick was because he thought it was important. And he now feels like he's so he's choosy about what he does. And many times things he chooses are things, you know, like worth it. Ken Feinberg story about the guy who was in charge of distributing the liability funds from the 9-11 Victims Fund. And it's like, you know, he's taking on these weighty things now that because he thinks they matter. Right. But you think about that guy who was Mr. Mom and Beetlejuice and all the stuff that kind of the evolution from comedy to drama to this very kind of exalted place. He sort of sneakily snuck up onto people. Yeah, you could say that as like one of the great actors in the and I think the Birdman was like, oh, my God, he's like in the Pantheon now. And I'm yeah. not sure anybody would have said that previously. But all of a sudden it's like, man, this guy is like right up there with the greatest people doing well, it. Everyone kind of loved him even pre Birdman. I yeah. tried to get him in recount. Jay Roach really wanted him to be in recount. And we met with him. But it was the kind of thing where he was one of those people where there was always an excitement around him because he exudes you know, an intensity, a wiriness, a right. fire. There's like an other thing with him as a performer and then combined with that other soulfulness. So it's, so it's pretty special. But Birdman, yeah, it sort of things exploded into a, a whole other direction. And I do think that you either want to do these true life stories or you don't, right? And he clearly does. Uh, and that was why I ultimately decided to make that first offer to him because I just thought, oh, he does have a fondness for these types of stories so maybe we might have a shot he is the soul of the movie in a lot of ways very much and the moral center of the movie and and it kind of is the everyman 
he's obviously he's a, he's a doctor, but for all of the stuff going on with all the investigations and all the other moving parts of the plot, he's the one you most are connected to and you care about the most. And it's hard to go through everything he goes through, both physically, emotionally. Like he plays all elements of it, you yeah. know, from being the the guy you root for at the beginning because he seems like the empathic doctor who was just trying to take care of people to the guy who gets sucked into both his personal self-destruction in his own life and all the moral complexity and the guilt over having made a lot of people into addicts, not intentionally, but made patients of his who are either dead or addicted. It's just a lot going on in that part, and he does it incredibly well. Now, I say all of that about Michael Keaton, and I think he is, you know, one of our great actors. And when I think about the Mount Rushmore, in that area, you know, I think there's Michael Keaton, there's Marlon Brando, you know, Danny Strong. I yeah, look, I'm not going to argue with you. Who you am I? Him. Who am I to argue with you? And the most amazing thing is yeah. that it all happened. Daniel Day Lewis too, but okay. Daniel Day Lewis. Okay, well, added that, that there is Mount Ryan Rushmore. I think I'm good with that. <laughs> and when I think about it, what's the most amazing thing about it is that you achieve so much so young. First of all, there's no world in which we have enough time to play all of the iconic Danny Strong work from Buffy. Gilmore Girls. I actually went back and tried to find, you know, your role in Saved by the Bell back in 1993. That's that's a dark journey for you to go do that. Those are some dark places. That's your Kurtz going into the jungle. Did you get that video banished from the dark web? I mean, like we couldn't even find, I mean, I had, we had all the hackers out searching for it. We couldn't find it. I wanted to see you in Saved by the Bell. I, I very much had it banished. Yeah. How old were you when you first acted where your face was first on a screen? Older than you think I was, cause I wasn't a quote, a child actor. I did right. Saved by the Bell when I was 19 or 20. Okay. So 19, right? 19. That was the first time I thought that was your first appearance, but I didn't want to like forget like a Doritos commercial or something that you had done. Well, no, I did a Doritos commercial when I was 16. So I don't even count that. But, uh, <gasps> How did I know that? Yeah. How did that, I know? Is that crazy? How did I know that? Maybe I told you once, but it's a Doritos commercial. Yes. With Jay Weno. First thing I ever did. And oh then, you God. know, when I did Say by the Bell, it was actually Say by the Bell, the new class. So no okay. disrespect for Say by the Bell. Yeah. But I, uh, I played two parts. I was one of the, quote, nerds on Say by the Bell. Mm. And then they thought I was funny, which was very type, flattering. Little typecasting there. Little, little, whatever, little whatever. Typecasting, whatever. Yeah. He says you, but perhaps yeah. you're right. Yeah. And then uh, they said, hey, we've got this other part for you of the school con man. And I thought, oh, they're going to bring me back next season to play the school con man. And they said, yeah. no, no, next week. So they, they didn't even care yeah. that I was going to play two characters in a two week period, which I thought was pretty hilarious. So, yes, I played two roles on Saved by the Bell, the new class back to back. You, you protest too much because I know you actually love hearing yourself back in these days. I want to just here's a little not, not accurate. Here's a little. It's totally accurate. Here's a little season three of Buffy the Vampire Slayer with Danny Strong and his incredibly iconic role of Jonathan Levinson. Here he is. This would have been right about the year 2000, I guess. Let's play this. It's called The Prom, this episode. We have one more award to give out. Is Buffy Summers here tonight? We don't talk about it much, but it's no secret that Sunnydale High isn't really like other high schools. A lot of weird stuff happens here. Zombies! Hyena people! Snyder! But whenever there was a problem or something creepy happened, you seemed to show up and stop it. Most of the people here have been saved by you or helped by you at one time or another. So the senior class offers its thanks and gives you um, this. It's an umbrella. I'm pulling out an umbrella. It's from all of us. And it has written here, Buffy Summers, class protector. 
So first of all, like the music bed there is just, it's takes like us just back, takes incredible. Us back. For all those listening, I'm nervously giving a speech and I'm the nerd of the school because yeah. I think without that context, it may sound like I'm the worst actor in the history. Everybody of, already knows about this, but there's do, no, do one, there's no one watching who doesn't know that you, who you were in the in okay. movie. And here's my real question is, yeah. you were post-pubescent when you did this role, right? I was like 23, 24, right. 25. Yeah. I mean, your yeah. voice was very high. In that, I was in a that thing clip. I was doing. It was a character thing. Was it really? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Can you prove that? You know, John. I'm not. I'm you're not my sure. class protector. So I don't was, know. Was yes. Your, I would your, do. Uh, I would make vocal adjustments with different roles I'd play. So here's the question. As you look back on, and you know, again, we could do a whole other podcast about this, but as you look back on Buffy, it really wasn't kind of an iconic show in a lot of ways. And <laughs> you think about all of the stuff that came after that deals with zombies and vampires and all that stuff being integrated into pop culture. Like Buffy like, kind of led the way in a lot of sense. And Gilmore Girls, kind of just that incredibly iconic cast in that show. Like so many people, Melissa McCarthy, all these other people. How do you look back on that? Because you're now, you know, and we're going to talk about this in the last part of the podcast, but you're now like a award-winning screenwriter, director, everything that you always wanted to be, I know from having talked with you about it a lot. How do you look back on that period when, I know you enjoy acting, but like, how do you contextualize that? Kind of think about what it's like to have been as a relatively young man known in these pretty popular, pretty mainstream kind of television hits that a lot of people still think of you about, but you're really moved past it and, and are doing something much more ambitious and complicated now. Well, you know, at the time, my only goals were to be a successful actor. And doing those shows, you know, I didn't make it to ultimately the height of what I wanted to achieve. However, I did pretty damn good. I mean, those are those are iconic shows and they're beloved shows. And, you know, when I was in theater school, my goals through my 20s, they weren't to be a writer, director or showrunner. Right. They were to be an actor. It wasn't until I started writing in my mid-20s and by my late 20s that I really wanted to transition into a writing career. But for all that period of time, that was my goal. And, and when I was in theater school at USC, people that I was idolizing at the time were people like Steve Buscemi and Philip Seymour Hoffman before they became famous, when they were character actors in these really cool movies. That's what I wanted to be, was a character actor like them in these really cool movies. And when I look at my acting career now, I feel like, well, I kind of achieved that in television, yeah. that I'm a character actor on, on all these really cool TV shows and I'm still doing it. You know, I've been on Billions for the last five years. So there is a certain satisfaction of, yes, I didn't become whatever name you want to name of Michael someone Keaton. who's Michael Keaton, of someone I didn't, I didn't become that. Marlon Brando. Yeah, they're, they're okay. But yeah. I did achieve a goal that I'd set out to achieve when I went to college to be a theater major and a goal that's very hard to achieve. And people are very cynical about actors and eye-rolly and sarcastic, but they don't understand that getting that two-line part on Buffy is a staggering achievement all on its own, let alone it becoming a recurring role, et cetera. So I look back upon it all in a very positive light of, oh, wow, I did it. And I ended up on these great shows that people really love. And, and I think I did good work on them and diverse work. So 
I feel good about it, John. You know how I feel about it, Danny. I feel <laughs> great about it. And frankly, you know, if I had to choose between the work you've you've written and directed and the work you've acted in, you know, it would be a tough call for me. Let's put it that I, way. Well, I hope you'd like the the writing and directing, but whatever. It's uh, you know, we'll talk about it later. You know, I love the writing and directing, Danny. I'm, just, I'm, sure, I'm trying sure. to tell you how much I love both. Is what I'm trying to say to you. Here. <laughs> all good, all good. We're still friends. Oh, good. Thank God. I thought yeah. that was at risk. For yeah, a yeah. There. It got dark. Like I said, I could talk about your acting all day, but I do actually want to talk about your your directing and your writing because it's really what you do most of the time now. And sure. as, as much as I joke about it, I, I actually have a particular soft spot for you because, you know, of this work we did together once. So we we're going to talk about, we'll talk about that and yeah. some other things on the other side of this ad break. We're here with Danny Strong, the man, the writer behind Dope Sick. We haven't even mentioned Barry Levinson directs a couple of those episodes. We've Amazing. left him out because, you know, who cares about Barry fucking Levinson? It's all about Danny Strong. <laughs> Danny Strong uh, here on Hell and High Water. We'll be right back after these messages. And here we are, back for the third part of Hell and High Water with Danny Strong. My God, I think about the epic, just the epic, epic, epic work that you've done as a writer and director. I want to start with the work that Danny did and that won him all kinds of awards and helped his career and made him famous and got him a girlfriend and all kinds of things happened. <laughs> in the, you know, everything, everything good that happened to Danny basically came out of this work on a little movie that he did few years ago called Game Change. Let's just play a little bit of Sarah Palin and Nicole Wallace having a little bit of a fight after Sarah Palin fucks up her Katie Couric interview here in the HBO movie of the book Game Change. It wasn't my fault. I wasn't properly prepped. You weren't properly prepped because you wouldn't listen to us. You never listened to your advisor. Because you're overwhelming me with too much information. So I, I don't I don't want to do these interviews. I want to do what I want to do. We're just trying to help you get through this, Governor. All we want is for you to succeed. Yes. You're not helping. You're just screwing me up. You're telling me what to say, what to wear, how to talk. I am not your puppet. Now I understand what Hillary meant when she said she had to find her own voice. Yeah, because you're just like Hillary. First of all, Sarah Paulson playing Nicole Wallace, who now is way more famous than she was when Game Change came out, number one. Number two, Julianne Moore playing Sarah Palin, too much acclaim. And that, I have to say, of all the things in that thing, there are two things I love in that most. One, that sound, that Wallace saying, yeah, because you're just like Hillary, which actually sounds just like Nicole when she's being sarcastic, number one. And number two, I want to do what I want to do, which, of course, is is the ultimate Palin line and also the ultimate Danny Strong line kind of like defines your whole mode of existence. I want to do what I want to do, right? <laughs> uh, to my detriment sometimes, you know. Yeah, you, you tapped into something deep in the in the Palin yeah. character there. That's an amazing story. Uh, Jay Roach wanted to do the Palin story when we were in the middle of doing Recount. And he was really passionate about it. I had zero interest in it. For the benefit of anyone who doesn't happen to know, Danny Strong, and famous comedy director Jay Roach, made a previous docudrama about American politics prior to Game Change did a movie called Recount about the 2000 Florida Recount, not about this company, although every time the word Recount gets mentioned on a Recount product, you get a free Trump steak that'll be showing up in your mail. So just yeah, keep saying Recount I was, as much I've as been possible. waiting for, yeah. I, all I heard was I was going to get a Trump steak and you know, I've yeah. never gotten one. Oh, the Have Trump you ever had are on one, the by the way? Are they good? Ooh, they're just utterly rancid. Yes, just as you'd imagine. Um, so you guys were talking about wanting to do Palin while you were making recounts. He was passionate about it, and I did not want to do it. I had no interest in it. I don't even really remember why. So yeah. he's he's hammering me to do this Palin story over a two-year period. Yeah. I keep saying no. 
HBO comes to me and says, we're buying this book from John Heilman and Mark Halperin called Game Change. Yeah. About 2008, we're going to do Hillary Obama. Do you want to do it? We'd love for you to do it. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any of it, right? I didn't want to do a movie about Hillary and Obama. So then the book Game Change comes out. It's a phenomenon. I read the book, you know, like with one eye shut, feeling like I am the biggest asshole because I passed on this. This book is literally the biggest book of the year. And I'm reading the Hillary Obama section and I'm thinking, you know, I don't think I would have wanted to do this. I think this is really tough to pull off. I didn't see a way into it as a movie. Then I get to the Palin section and I just thought Jay Roach was right. There's an incredible movie in this story. And by the way, your book's phenomenal. You know, the book Game Change is phenomenal. But so then I thought, okay, so I was wrong, but whatever. HBO is pursuing this Hillary (laughs) Obama story. And I just forgot about it. Then about three months later, Jay Roach called me and he said, so I've taken over Game Change. I don't want to do the Hillary Obama story that they've tried to develop. I want to do the Palin story. And you've said no to me nine times, but I'm going to ask you one more time before I move on. Do you want to do it? And I said, I read the book. Yes, I want to do it. I want to do it. And I literally just said yes on that phone call. And there was this really interesting dynamic in that I had about three months to write the first draft to get the project going because of the timeline of it all. Yeah. There was a very small window of time to get it made because there would be no interest in it. If it hadn't gotten made in the next year and in order to get made in the next year, I had to finish a draft in about three months. And I loved the pressure of that. I thought we're going to get a fast answer. I've been writing scripts for three years that haven't gotten made. These things drag on and I'm just going to jump in. And then I jumped in and wrote the draft. I met with you guys and came to, to love you dearly, John. Right out of the gate. It was a crash thing. I mean, I'll, yeah. I, I could tell my own side of the story, but basically that, that that's, of course, all true. But I mean, like there was a whole other element of from our side of like kind of looking at this thing happen. But, you know, when I mean, we were psyched to get Jay Roach involved, I will say. Yeah, I mean, I mean and been. they said they said the price of admission was that Danny had to write it. And we were like, Danny, who? They're like, what? Man, Danny, is, the guy from Buffy? What are you talking like about? Sounds like a bad idea. The umbrella guy? <laughs> yeah. So I had this tiny window yeah. and then I wrote the draft and then Jay read it. I gave it to Jay. Yeah. And he said, yeah, this is it. We got something here. And then it got greenlit pretty fast. I think a few more drafts later. But here's the question I want to ask you about this, really, yeah. which is which is just to think about like this now ancient history, right? The movie was very successful, but Recount was a great movie. And it also been very successful coming before. And you managed to make... A very strong movie where one of the central characters is Ron Klain and who, you know, we love Ron Klain. He's the White House chief of staff now, but, you know, he's not Sarah Palin, right? You guys had figured out the drama of that and had made it work. Then that was part of the template for Game Change. I guess I ask you this question. This is still like you've transitioned out of now. I mean, Recount was really your was your first. That was the big produced sc- screenplay. Yeah. First thing I ever sold. First thing I never you ever sold, sold a script. Yeah. You obviously had decided that you had an ambition to write and then later an ambition to direct. You took on this project on Recount and sold it, as you said, and then there got there were Emmy nominations. And, and that was, you know, it was considered a big success. HBO was like now in the business of making like presidential election movies and, and mm-hmm. Game Change got its place in the sun. Ultimately, I mean, those are pretty big successes to have right out of the gate as a writer. And I know you struggled at various times to break in, but those are like big boons to your career. And I'm curious about a, how it affected the trajectory of your career. I mean, other than the obvious, hey, I got more opportunities, but like how it made you think about like, okay, what do I want to do next? What are the kinds of things I want to do next? Because you 
had these two giant successes of a very similar type in a way, both presidential mm-hmm. election movies, right? Yeah. Like, how do I now take that and, and start painting off of a broader palette, number one, and just kind of how incredibly empowering and, and exciting it must have been to get the kind of response you got to the first things right off the bat that you did as a writer. I've been writing scripts for seven years before I sold Recount as a pitch. Yeah. And those were all comedies. None of them ever sold. They got me an agent and a manager and meetings and all sorts of things, but I never got an actual paycheck doing it. Recount sells. It's the first drama I'd ever written. The others had all been comedies. I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Then I write it. It gets made and becomes this huge sort of phenomenon within the the industry. The script itself, it was number one on the blacklist. But I myself was pretty terrified because now I have been vaulted into this place as a writer at a pretty high level. But I don't even know if I could pull it off again. So it was actually a very scary couple of years. And the next thing I wrote didn't get made. Then the next thing I wrote was the movie The Butler. And writing that script was so complicated, such a difficult script. But when I turned it in, everyone loved it and Spielberg read it and wanted to direct it. And the relief I felt that I was able to do it again, that I had written a second script that was succeeding around Hollywood that Spielberg wanted to do. I I just can't begin to tell you the relief I felt because I just didn't know if this was going to last more than a few years or not. And then Game Change happened, and then that was a massive hit. And then the butler was made, and then Empire happened. So now, all of a sudden, it's crazy. I've had this four really big successes in a row, and I feel like I'm just never not feeling anything but pressure, to be honest with you. Of every time I go to write, I feel like my career hangs in balance on this script, and maybe that's a good thing. It's it's silly because it's not true. But maybe the pressure that I put on myself helps drive me forward. And maybe I need that kind of pressure. I feel a little better now. I'm a little less kind of crazed in that way. But yeah, but, it, but not, not much, <laughs> not but much, not much. It's, it's a very kind of high stakes thing. But it's also people are paying me uh, to write something. And it's so subjective you turn it in, everyone loves it, except the head of the studio, and they hate it. And then you feel as if you failed and you've let them down. And so it's there's there's a lot of, uh, it's a very kind of high stakes kind of tightrope at times. You've obviously done some things, the Hunger Games movies, that's not in the same vein. But I think about, you know, you're like dealing with a lot of real life things that were in some way rooted in fact, both Recount and Game Change, obviously presidential politics. You know, I remember seeing the world premiere of your Salinger movie. You were, you were there. Of Rebel and the Riot at Sundance. And then we, I think, did an event here in New York to talk about it. And it was the first movie you directed, a movie about J.D. Salinger, mm-hmm. a kind of iconic figure in literature. Dopesick is another version of something that's like very, you know, these are things that all have, have reportage and journalism in the middle of them, research historians work like. You like to be tethered to stuff and find the drama in what really happened. Game changing and recount are both really not about, I mean, for all the attention that Julianne Moore got, it really is not a, a movie about Palin. It's really a movie about Steve Schmidt and Nicole Wallace. It's really a movie mm-hmm. about the moral complexity of being the advisors there. And you and Jay both were like, this is the stuff that people relate to. Is like, these are people who are identifiable and relatable. Recount is really, again, about the staff. It's about it's about Jim Baker and about Ron Klain more than it's about Al Gore and George W. Bush. They have bit parts in the movie. But then with Salinger, this is a movie about Salinger, you know, and Salinger's journey. And I'm curious about like the difference of how you think about that when you're dealing with 
historical figures who are in some cases quite famous. How do you feel about the challenges of taking on the player, the main person mm-hmm. who's, who's, you know, have you done the Hillary and Obama story in Game Change, for instance, and that really was about Hillary and Obama yeah. versus doing, hey, let's find these behind the scenes characters who are illuminative in a way that the audience will immediately latch on to because they can see themselves in those characters. Yeah, well, there's a practicality to it, which is just casting the part. And how hard it is to cast someone when they're extremely recognizable. And the highest bar of that was, of any project I've ever done, was Sarah Palin. How do you cast someone to play Sarah Palin? What a daunting challenge that is. And then Ed Harris played John McCain, and it's not a dissimilar challenge. And in both cases, they are two of the most talented actors you could find, and they were incredible in the parts. They just gave these staggering performances. But part of my trepidation with when you're doing the actual person is just the practicality of hiring an actor to play them. Now with J.D. Salinger, no one had ever heard him speak. You don't really know what he looks like. So I was less worried about that. And in the case of that project, I was just deeply moved by the fact that the character of Holden Caulfield came from war trauma, that the story of this very disturbed young man came from someone who went through as much trauma as you could go through in World War II, had been institutionalized, had what I very much believe is undiagnosed PTSD for the rest of his life, and that this character that would go on and inspire and move and in some cases inspire people in dark ways a nation in an extent that very few characters had. And when I had read it about his war experience, and that's where this came from, that he wrote the book a few years after he came back from the war and was a transformed person before the war. He was this charming, charismatic, sarcastic man of New York City, right? Picking up girls and going to nightclubs and the most, the stork club, the most famous club. And then he comes out of the war. He's in New York. He then starts to distance himself from the city. He moves to New Hampshire. He then builds a fence around the house. Then he is basically just in his office away from the house. Like he just isolates himself to such a profound extent. And that was, to me, that is what the war did to him. And what we got from that war from him is one of the most important works of art of the 20th century. And I just, I thought, okay, well, there's so many stories in there, but ultimately it's the story of what it means to be an artist. I never viewed that film as a biopic at all. I viewed it as the artistic journey, as the writer's journey. Everything about the story is constructed around his journey as an artist, not as a, quote, biopic beat. So anyways, that's where that came from. And then I thought, well, I should direct this because I'm a writer. This is what I do. It was sort of the most personal thing I've actually ever worked on. All these other projects have nothing to do with my own life. They're really sort of things that I'm angry about or that I want to discuss or things that I I think need to be exposed to a mass audience. There's a bit of muckraking in a number of them. I mean, Dope Sick is just, it's purely a piece of muckraking and also hopefully a more empathetic understanding of addiction and what that means and what it does to people and people to take Richard Sackward's playbook. they, They blame the abusers when in fact there's actually something else going on here that is quite profound. And, and you know, the, the responses I've been getting from people, you know, on social media uh, and just have read have been just, uh, they, they make me want to cry sometimes of people saying, you know, if I had only known what my mom was really going through, I, I could have treated her differently. I could have done things differently. Instead, I hated her. I thought she was a, a loser and a junkie when in fact her brain had been taken over. And that was why she couldn't stop taking yeah. these pills, right? So so that was a major goal of the piece as well. But with Rebel in the Rye, 
it was, oh, this is actually, this is the story of the artist and the journey of the artist. And you can cast J.D. Salinger, although that was challenging, but I ended up with one of the most talented young actors there is out there, Nicholas Holt. If you think about things you're famous for in, in the writing and, you know, the things you've won awards for, right? It's like, you know, the, the, there's you know, Game Change and Empire are both. Empire is a huge accomplishment. We could spend a lot of time talking about that if we want sure. to. Just creating that show became an incredible franchise. And what people were obsessed with that show for, yeah. for a period of time, right? Incredible, an incredible thing. Um, you know, Rebel in the Rise, like not the thing, right? It's not, it just, it was a smaller, a smaller film. Didn't break Small through. Small indie, didn't break through. And didn't break through the way that some of these other things did. Yeah. Didn't, got didn't, into Sundance, which is huge, but Danny, I'm trying to say through. something nice about the movie. I'm yeah, not, no, not I believe me, I get it. Or putting it down. <laughs> you know, I love Rebel in the Rye. And, and I think it gets to something that's at the core of every writer, whether you write nonfiction or fiction or, or journalism or screenplays or poetry or whatever. There's something, you know, about the struggles that all of us who do this infernal thing kind of go through. And, and there is a scene in the movie that I, I remember that really kind of goes right to this. Mm -hmm. It's a, a scene with Nicholas Holt, with Kevin Spacey, who's Whit Burnett, who's a professor at Columbia and an editor of a, of a magazine that Salinger's trying to get into or is into. Yeah. And he's sort of the mentor figure to Salinger, to young Salinger. So let's, let's take a listen to that clip, J.D. Salinger and his mentor, Whit Burnett. I don't know if I'm cut out for this. Yeah. Maybe you're not. You, you don't think I am? Well, let me ask you a question. Why do you want to do this? Publish? No. Be a writer. Why do you want to write? Because I... I get angry about a lot of things. And when I'm writing, I feel like I'm doing something about it, like I'm finally getting to speak my mind. You see, Jerry, this is what you need to be doing in your writing. Explore what it is that makes you angry and then put that into a story. No, no, no. But here's the catch. You still may never publish. So, Danny, I, I don't want to overly psychoanalyze you here on this on this program. Um, a little bit, though. I mean, you know, every writer has their moments of doubt about their abilities and everyone has had to have some come to Jesus talks with their mentors and so, you know, I feel like the, this movie has a certain kind of not an autobiographical quality because, you know, you're not Salinger. But but I do think when writers do work about other writers and certainly about iconic writers, there's always kind of part of them that are in the work. Don't you think? Yeah, 100%. It's not a, a coincidence that the first movie you directed was a movie about one of the great writers of all time and his struggles with writing and his like what his relationship to writing all of that right i mean it's funny we did that event together i don't think i've ever actually asked you this on stage but it feels to me like there's a reason why that's the movie that you first got to be a director in and that that, that you, why you got attached to that story right yeah that no that i mean look that's exactly right anyone listening to this podcast uh rebel in the rye Go, go, go watch it. It's, it's a, a deep cut. It's a deep cut, but it's it's a great, it's a good it's, movie. It's it's really lovely movie. And, movie. Uh, you know, when it came out, I had some of the great writers of our times emailed me and just said, oh my God, I love this movie so much. And it, it was so amazing to yeah. get, to get these emails from people. But I, um, yeah, no, that's exactly right. That was why I felt like, and I saw it as an independent film. I directed a few episodes of Empire. Yeah. So I'd sort of cut my teeth directing Empire, but that was absolutely why uh why i did that for my first film and i'll tell you what else i'll, I'll just i want to note it because we we got to end here but i want to ask you two very quick things before we do i will note you and i actually didn't even realize this until i just looked at, at it when i we watched the last 
two episodes of Dope Sick and didn't really even note that you directed those two, the last two. Yeah. You know, Barry Levinson directed the first two, two other good directors directed the ones in the middle. And then you get to those last two very powerful episodes that you directed. So congratulations on that. I hadn't even really totally grokked it. We were so we so wanted to watch the episodes that like we like we don't want to watch the credits. We're like, moving on. Let's get to the next one. Um, These questions, can you answer them as short or as long as you wish? The first question is like, what are you watching on television right now that you love? And that you're obsessed with because you were talking about how you much you love this form of limited series and other mm-hmm. things. I know you're an avid consumer of culture. So uh, either TV or film, if you want, of things that you are watching or have seen that you're really, really in love with. And then secondly, as you start to contemplate, either you may be working on a project I don't know about. If you are, you could talk about it. I'd love to hear about it. But if not, like, what are you thinking about for the future? What do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah, well, I've been so consumed with Dope Sick press, I actually haven't really sat down and dived into anything. The last thing that I saw that I loved was White Lotus. Yes. Um, just fantastic. Yeah, Incredible great. writing, beautifully directed. The performances are great and wicked fun, you know? Yeah. So White Lotus, big, big thumbs up recommendation here. This is going back. This is so old news. But for anyone who didn't see The Queen's Gambit, loved, yeah, yeah. loved The Queen's Gambit. Both limited series, right? Great, great form. The what I'm I'm up to a bunch of things. Wait, are you? Can I ask you this question? Yeah. Are you are you forbidden as a member of the Billions family? As you know, I'm very close to Brian Koppelman and it, you know, we both run the show with that Showtime. But I, I refuse to be part of the Billions thing that you're not allowed to say anything nice about Succession or if you just not watched it. Oh, uh, I, I haven't watched this season, so I'm not caught up on Succession, okay. but Succession's great. Okay. You know, yeah, right. uh, are you not allowed to say good things? No, By the I'm, way, jo- I'm watch joking. Billions. I'm joking. Any, I'm anyone joking. who's listening to this, watch Billions. Billions is uh, just fantastic. There is plenty of time uh-huh. in the world to watch two great series with a different take on American, American <laughs> late stage capitalism. I don't see any reason that this, this yeah. is a, this is a false binary. You don't have to choose wow. between the two of them. I haven't gotten to this season yet, okay. but you're uh, going to love You're going to love it, Danny. It's is it very, awesome? It's very good. It's very good. Not as good as Billions season five, yeah. or I'm sure what season six is going to be like, but yeah. It's still, it is fantastic. I'm very excited about Billion Season 6. Okay, next for Danny Strong. You know, I've got a whole bunch of different things that are in really early stages. I have a TV company now, John. Isn't that crazy? So I'm producing projects that I'm trying to get made that I'm not writing myself, that yeah. I'm supervising. I don't have one specific goal. You know, someone asked, um, I got a call from someone yesterday because they saw Episode 7 of Dope Sick that I directed. And they were they were like, oh, I loved how you directed this. Can I attach you to this movie as a director? Is that yeah. is that what you want to do now? Yeah. And it was, no, that's I don't want to do that now. I just want to do everything. You know, I want to do another limited series. I want to I want to direct some of the episodes. I want to write and direct another movie. I want to write movies that I'm not going to direct. It's not as if there's one focus now. Yeah. It's literally just kind of more of the same and trying to just keep the work as dynamic and as quality, as exciting as possible in whatever role I'm playing on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's great to see you. Buddy, uh, I love seeing you. And maybe maybe it'll return my email to get dinner again. I don't know. I was just like, wonder if I'm out. I'm like looking at the ratings. I'm like, are they high enough that I can get a dinner with John again? I'm just, I just want to, I want to be back. The ratings for what? For, for dope sick, but there are no ratings because it's streaming. They don't even tell you anymore. So I can't even use that to try and get a dinner with you. I've been trying to get numbers because that was the determination. Once I figured out what the numbers were, (laughs) I was going to make, I was going to make a call on, on a, well, not so much. I think you're in for dinner. The question was whether it was going to be a weekend dinner at a good restaurant or like a shitty Tuesday night at a diner. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the numbers will decide. That's fair. (laughs) Danny strong, my friend, my hero. Hero, the handsomest man I know, and the brilliant <laughs> writer, director, auteur behind Dopesick on Hulu, coming to an end after eight incredible weeks of that show, coming to an end tomorrow night on Hulu. And just go like look at the back catalog, man. It's amazing. Just go back and just in the next rainy weekend that you have, just like go on a Danny Strong binge and do everything from 
all the Gilmore Girls episodes and all the Buffy episodes. And then, all, episodes. and then definitely, definitely, definitely watch Rebel in the Rye. Forget yeah, about please the watch Rebel in the Rye. You'll be like, you'll be my 15th viewer. So if, it's a real historic of what you'll be. And if you haven't seen Recount, you got to see that too. Kevin Spacey is Ron Klain. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh my in God. It. Like the least Ron Klainish person in America. Let's put it that way. Uh, that's funny. That's Bye, true. Danny. It's great to see you. Uh, Thank great you seeing you this. too. Love More you. soon, I hope. Love you too, buddy. Bye. Bye. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Danny Strong for being with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel handles the research. Margot Gray is our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 